Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's an honor for me to have with me today, Cassio Goldschmidt. Hi, Cassio. Hey, Nabil. Great to be here. Cassio is an internationally recognized information security leader with a strong background in both product and program level security. Okay. He is currently the head of information security at Service Titan. He has spent his career in leadership roles at Aon, NCR Corporation, Intuit, Symantec, and Cisco. Outside of work, Cassio contributes to the Open Web Application Security Project, also known as OWASP, as well as the Software Assurance Forum for Excellence in Code, also known as Safe Code. And he's also been contributing to the CWE and SANS Top 25 Most Dangerous Software Errors list. He continually contributes to the security education curriculum of numerous universities and industry certifications as well. Cassio has been nominated for a number of industry accolades, including multiple ISC Squared Information Security Leadership Americas Awards over the years, the TEN Information Security Executive Award in 2019, as well as the OWASP Web Application Security Person of the Year called WASPI Award in 2012. Cassio has also publicly been thanked by the Brazilian government's Superior Electoral Court for finding security weaknesses and providing recommendations for improving the security of their electronic voting system. So Cassio, please tell us how you got started with security. Thanks, Nabil. So a lot of people in this field actually get into secure by hacking or doing something you know, pretty close to being illegal. I started as an engineer. I started actually writing code at Symantec as a principal software engineer for the Symantec Endpoint Security product. So whenever we write code uh, for products, you have a phase, there is the code review. And we would get to a big room with other engineers, you know, read their code before the meeting and come with a lot of annotations about best practices that people should be actually uh, following. And at the time, I was a software engineer. I had a uh, master's in software engineer, was doing my MBA, and would come to those reviews with a lot of annotations for my teammates about things like input validation and other problems that we might have found in the code that should uh, be fixed. That got the uh, interest of our uh, product security team at Symantec, and I moved to that team. Once I moved to that team, I was invited to become the manager uh, of that team. Uh, the director who was in that team before was uh, left the company. And they, you know, the person thought that somebody with a strong engineering background and an MBA would be the right person to actually uh, manage to speak the business language and also the engineering language at the same time and bring the thing to the next level. When we started our um, Product uh, security at Semantic was pretty early on compared to the rest of the industry. And a lot of the services that we were actually selling to, uh, quote unquote, selling to the other business units uh, were, uh, how can I say, 
uh, were not uh, properly connected to each other. We would say, hey, we do training, we do a little bit of uh, penetration tests for you and so on. And when the Microsoft SEL came, it really was, uh, a, you know, was very enlightening for us to actually understand, okay, security is part of every single step of the development process. And that's the way I should approach the other business units. It's not when you engage me. It's like you have to engage me all the time. And that worked really well for us to make the thing work and you know, get us to the next level. After 10 years at Symantec, I moved to Intuit, which was a completely different company. Symantec was really developing software at large for desktop servers, uh, but always in the intranet. And Intuit was really uh, advanced in uh, cloud and you know, SaaS type of, uh, of products. And I came as the security business partner for the Intuit Financial Service. That business unit was responsible for uh, over 600 to 700 uh, banks and uh, you know, uh, small credit unions and so on, and all hosted in our uh, data centers. And the type of attacks that we've seen, the type of uh, requirements was quite different from what we saw at uh, Symantec. Um, eventually, I end up at Service Titan, which is my uh, current employer. It's a company here in LA, and it's what the people call a unicorn company. In other words, it's a company that uh, worth over $2 billion and still a startup. We grew over 900% in the last three years. And uh, the software we do is software for home services. So we help people who actually comes to your house to fix your plumbing, your garage doors, your HVAC, to do the service properly, which is a very underserved type of market and they have very different requirements and uh, you know, from the business they have worked in the past. That's fantastic. And thank you for that great overview. It's, it's really insightful to see how you can go from really starting off by understanding how to build something and then eventually transition through steps to understand how that thing breaks. And we've talked about this multiple times on various episodes on our podcast, too, is that in order to be good at breaking software, it's also equally important to understand how software is built and how software actually works. So that's really good insight. I'm so glad that we could have you today to share that with us. So you mentioned something around the peer review piece that happened when you initially started and you would meet as a group to discuss and review code and talk about things like input validation. How has that changed and evolved to what people do today, especially when it comes to security? Because I'm assuming back then, you didn't necessarily have any formalized security framework to discuss. It was only if somebody thought about something. But now we have a lot of different frameworks in place. So how has that really changed and evolved um, over time? That's a really great question because it involves uh, quite a lot. For example, a lot of people think about you know one of the first security frameworks that were uh, highly publicized was uh, Microsoft SDL. Right, and from them, a lot of the security uh, practitioners thought, okay, this is the way to develop secure software, and this is the way that everyone should do. And there is a one-size-fits-all uh, type of uh, environment here, and that's definitely not the case, right? Uh, when we uh, got together at SafeCode, and SafeCode is a uh, not-for-profit that was created by Microsoft, Adobe. 
Symantec, EMC, and SAP. We actually discuss how we develop, uh, you know, uh, secure code and uh, how uh, the development lifecycle should be among those companies. And at large, that framework worked for us. But then again, different type of software, different type of uh, environments require a very different type of approach. So, for example, take uh, the type of application you develop, right? Whether it's internet-facing or just internet-connected, what kind of privileges you have in that application, whether you're developing a software for ATM machines, all those things actually will influence what kind of uh, defense mechanisms in how uh, you should actually think about the codes that you're developing. Uh, compliance obligations, right? You have, uh, for example, PCI, which is very, uh, will dictate what you have to do, right? Like or not, you will have to, you know, you will need to follow some steps. You will have to, for example, look at the OS top 10 and make sure you are free of uh, any critical cross-site scripting or SQL injections and so on, right? The platform where you're going to run, uh, the architecture for phones and uh, the security controls you have for memory management and so on are very different from a PC or what you have in a data center where people will not be able to actually reverse engineer things, right? And something you have to take into consideration when you are actually uh, deciding how you're going to, you know, review your code and the risk that it represents this type of attacks. And even the programming languages, uh, a lot of uh, software still today is developing C++, and buffer overflow is a thing. And remote code execution is really one of the worst things that can happen. Uh, depending on the language you use, you might not have the proper support for cross-site cross scripting. So you have to actually make sure that you're doing something to compensate the flaws of the language. And the development methodology, right? When uh, Microsoft started, for example, we talk about uh, waterfall models. And then quickly they tweak things in order to go and uh, accept, uh, you know, agile and other type of methodologies. And I think these days you have other type of uh, tools out in the market, you know, books from O'Reilly, such as Agile Security. They will tell you how to do things in a way that really fits the, the new models that people are using for, uh, for developing code. Just the risk profile of the of the business as well, right? What kind of attacks? Uh, DDoS can be a really big thing for some of uh, the companies, right? For some others, really, even if you have a data breach, it might not matter as much as, you know, as other companies, depending on what you do. For example, let's say you have, uh, you're in the movie industry and you're doing the episode for Game of Thrones. Probably if it uh, leaks, people will continue to watch Game of Thrones. If you leak a movie, that's a completely different story, right? Because people might not actually go and see the movie if it's available on the internet. And, uh, you know, it will affect the, uh, the revenue for that movie compared to the revenue of a uh, stream service that you pay every month. For another example, for us at uh, Service Titan, uh, one of the big risks that we uh, identified was what if somebody in a shopping that you know does plumbing or HVAC moves away, like let's say a, um, a former employee moves away and can actually capture your phone number and go to another shop, right? They didn't uh, steal any customer data, just a phone number, and suddenly all the calls are going to the new shop. 
And that was one of the problems that we've seen, and we have to change our processes in order to, uh, you know, uh, make sure that this this was not going to happen with our uh, people. Obviously, the the budget is also something to consider when you're developing software, right? Microsoft, Google, they have positions for um, for their uh, staff that don't exist anywhere else, right? At Symantec, we had, for example, a threat research lab which is really a luxury for most businesses out here. And, uh, you know, startups might not have that and might need to use augmented uh, security uh, options, such as using third party to, you know, give you all the threat intel you need to do pen test, which, you know, sometimes you're better off doing this kind of thing. And uh, just the maturity and the uh, culture of the company also, you know, matters quite a bit as well. Yeah, no, those are those are so valid. And we see that out there, too, with all the organizations that we're working with, how context and, and business impact and business objectives really drive and shape the uniqueness of the you know, application security initiative that you typically have in different organizations. And I agree with you that, you know, Microsoft, when they released the Microsoft SDL, they kind of highlighted the need for having security touch points at various phases throughout the SDLC and security is not just a one-stop activity that you can do at a given time. It's something that ends up becoming part of your culture, part of your processes, part of your um, gating process and escalation process and, and everything else. It just becomes part of your DNA as an organization and it has to evolve that way too. So that's, that's really insightful, in, especially in all the examples that you gave here. So, you know, you mentioned about your experience and tenure at Symantec. And um, there's this common term that people confuse or misunderstand, which is the difference between security software, like antivirus software, and software security. So... Can you help clarify for our audience or from your perspective, what's the, what's the difference and how do they solve different needs that we have in our SDLC efforts today? Yeah, that's such a enlightening question. And I couldn't agree with you more that people, a lot of times, they just don't understand the tools we have at our disposal and uh, what you serve for. And another great example is the OS Top 10. Right, which people think it's a it's a framework, it's the way you should develop software, or it's just a bug list. But you know, back to your question, uh, security software and secure software are very different things. Security software is the software they use in order to defend your computer. We're talking about antivirus, we're talking about firewalls, we're talking about IDS, IPS, and those are really important but they don't necessarily mean that they are secure software. In other words, it doesn't mean that they are actually uh, developed with uh, defense programming in mind. And when I talk about defense programming, I'm talking about you know, how you fail when something goes wrong. Sometimes the best way to fail is to fail open or fail close, depending on the type of software you're doing, right? For example, if you have a you know, in the real world, uh, world, if you have a, uh, you know, door that is a magnetic lock type of door and you have a fire in the building, you'd better fail that door open, although it's a security mechanism, 
right? And if you have, for example, uh, other type of software that you're doing and people are trying to break into your system, you'd better fail open. You have to do input validation for secure software, right? And it has nothing to do with the security features of the software. It's really looking to the type of uh, input you have and, uh, you know, whether that input is properly, uh, uh, how can I say, uh, structured for what you're doing. So things that come to mind is chemicalization of, uh, you know, URLs and uh, avoiding path traversal. Uh, whether you're properly logging the information that you have is also very imp uh, important in, a, you know, in defense programming and with that defense mindset. Whether you're validating the components, whether those components are the ones that you actually installed in the system or someone else actually replaced those components by other components that are actually malicious. Uh, ensure the integrity and confidentiality of the data also comes to mind. Uh, another thing that's interesting is that a lot of people say, well, uh, the people who do security software don't necessarily do secure software. My experience there is that because security software is so often scrutinized, you know, it eventually becomes or tend to become secure software. So, for example, you look at AV, antivirus, and it's really a great target for hackers, right? Just think about AV for a moment. It runs with high privileges, right? Uh, it often have parts in kernel mode. It's installed in every single system. And if a attacker can actually get and disable that uh, antivirus, they really can control the system ultimately, right? So I tend to think, and from my experience, that you know, security software tends to become more secure than most softwares, although this is not necessarily true all the time. I think there's a inherent benefit when you're developing mm -hmm. security software is that you're uh, kind of in the business of security. So people you're hiring, the engineers and developers, yeah. they're already very savvy when it comes to understanding security implications, which is why they end up focusing on making sure at least some of the most common and basic um, issues are covered by default and they're not going to fall prey to like a basic low-hanging fruit type of issue. And if they are not, they actually, you know, learn with time. That's, that's the other I thing. I mean, that's part of their ex the exposure and experience. They get learning about viruses, malware, vulnerabilities. They inherently learn that as part of their day-to-day, -day, you know, osmosis of, of being around other developers who may be aware of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, there's an interesting phrase that I picked up from one of my mentors early on in my career when he was asked what's the difference between security software and software security. Uh, the way we described it was security software is software that's going to protect you as the end user from getting breached. Software security is making sure that your developers are developing the software in a manner that it, the software is going to behave when an attacker is going to try to make it misbehave. So yes. it's really making sure that the software is going to be behaving well, and it's a well-behaved software. I really like yeah. that uh, analogy. So I, I've used that multiple times ever since. Yeah. Then. Another great example I love is uh, OpenSSL, right? Security components, security software, not necessarily secure, right? We had a number of high severity vulnerabilities in OpenSSL, and also it kind of debunks the myth that open source is necessarily more secure than closed source. 
because a lot of other uh, software solutions that were doing TLS and so on, they were you know, not having the same problems that we've seen a couple of years ago with uh, OpenSSL. That's a very common myth. And I think it's that could be another podcast episode in itself, just talking about security implications of open source. I mean, I remember hearing uh, a few years ago when open source code was actually more vulnerable because attackers were updating open source projects to inject potential backdoors and malicious code that they could then go and exploit at a later time. So just because it's open source and everyone's looking at it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's secure by nature. It still needs the same type of effort and diligence to make sure that it's, uh, it's also built securely. Absolutely. So let's talk about one of the interesting backgrounds and experiences that you've had uh, working very closely with the Brazilian government's um, electronic voting system. So can you tell with us how you can you tell us how you got involved with that effort and what that experience was like? Sure. So let me give some background information for uh, your audience first. So I, I was born in Brazil. I am Brazilian. And uh, Brazil uses uh, electronic voting for the national uh, presidential election. And voting is mandatory for all citizens. And unlike the U.S., every single vote counts. No matter where you are, one vote counts as one vote. It's not like here where, you know, you group votes and so on, which is kind of funny. But for the last two decades, Brazil used this electronic voting system. And what's really cool when we had elections in the past, that we could see just a few hours after the election, you would not wait for the newspaper next day and saying, hey, this candidate's ahead of the other candidate. You would just say, yeah, this person won, right? And uh, uh, quite frankly, uh, a lot of pride for Brazilians to have the systems uh, so early on and uh, you know, so ef- efficient, so effective, providing, uh, you know, uh, making our elections uh, process uh, something that other countries were not doing. But with time, I think the population caught up that, you know, all the electronic uh, systems can have flaws, just like any other type of software. And we start seeing some fear and doubt about how this system actually works. Right. One of the flaws that people point out uh, very often is that the electronic voting system does not uh, have a paper trail just like they have in other countries. So, for example, the machine says candidate A won and you go and, okay, says who? How can I audit the system? Right. Uh, Is there any other way to know whether this closed box is actually telling me the truth? Right. And uh, it, it, uh, the way, at least with the paper trail, is not there. And, you know, the government actually run their numbers and said, yeah, it's really expensive to put a, a uh, printer in every single voting machine. We're not going to do it. But the other, on, the other, on, on the other hand, they have a lot of very interesting stuff they're, they're doing. And one of them is the open call for uh, pen testers, they call investigators, that can actually go to our capital and for a few days of uh, a week, be able to get those machines and uh, test them and try to find secure vulnerabilities. And just like anything that the government does, it has a you know a, a good level of uh, transparency. The call is open for anybody. People can go and uh, and create their test plans. 
suggest to the government, you know, send the plans, uh, and then tell what kind of tools we're going to use, the tools are approved, and so on. There's a lot of bureaucracy in the process as well. But eventually, uh, you know, some people from academia, some people from uh, the industry actually end up going for this uh, penetration test. And even from the government, we have people from the federal police, for example, that made a group and they actually found some very interesting uh, very interesting uh, findings and reported back to the government. Eventually, the government actually published a uh, report saying, here are the findings, uh, here are the things that we accept and approve and think they are legit, and here's when they are going to be fixed. Now, the type of uh, environment they have is also very, very interesting. Because when you talk about high security type of environment, you have a lot of restrictions that you would not have with a pen test per se, right? One of them is that whatever tool you want to use, you have to tell in advance and you have to come in with a CDR, uh, CD-ROM, read-only, or DVD-R. And uh, one of the things that happened personally to me is that I, you know, I list a bunch of tools. I got there, there was no internet, and I learned that some of the tools don't stall unless you have internet, right? And, they need to uh, go to some type of license server or something over the internet to, to activate or something like that. Yeah, we, we're just so used to have internet everywhere that when you go and try to install your favorite, you know, static code analysis or dynamic analysis tool, it goes, oh, now it's time to update. You go, oh, oh my God, I cannot update. So <laughs> I cannot use this tool right now, right? Um, the investigators, as they call the pen testers, are isolated in an area with a tape, kind of like a crime scene type of tape. And in order to get to this area, you have to do a full body search. There is a metal detector. You come in pretty much without anything else besides your clothes, right? And there's going to be a buddy from the government sitting next to you and taking notes of everything that you do, right? So, so every attack, searching, everything, every step, the whole yeah. Thing. Super friendly people, by the way, right? They're there and uh, they're supportive. But yeah, their function is really to know, hey, if this person try to attack A, B, and C, and they will check what you're doing with the uh, your test plan as well. And if you don't complete your test plan, they will call out in a you know official report saying, hey, we got this person and the person didn't complete for you know due to timing or because 2K you know uh, went on a tangent during the the test. Uh, you know, every uh, person or group gets two computers. Uh, they come with the OS of your choice between Windows and uh, Ubuntu. Uh, there's a separate room for internet access. So if you want to actually do a query for something on the internet, you have to leave everything that you have, go to a separate room, query. And if you want to actually look at your, the source code, you have to go to also a separate room with their own type of uh, terminal in order to use the, you know, uh, how can you say, ID that they are set up, set up and no papers, no note-taking, no nothing, which, you know, sometimes makes things a little bit difficult because, uh, you know, people don't tend to memorize code, but, you know, at least understand the nuances that you want to test. And we're talking about millions of lines of code that were developed, right? Um, they provide you paper and they count the sheets every night. They seal in an envelope, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, if you find a vulnerability, you have to write a form, like very official form for the government. 
Or if you need more information about a certain uh, module of the system, it's another form that you have to go and do, right? So there's some bureaucracy. But at the same time, I think that um, the government or the people, the engineers, uh, have they're really trying to do the right thing, right? Whether that is enough to actually protect a, uh, protect a uh, national election, that's another question. But I must say that they have a lot of goodwill and they are trying to implement some transparency in the process. I would commend the efforts of the Brazilian government there because they're doing something that is fairly transformative and similar to the bug bounty programs that a lot of organizations today uh, perform, especially the public bug bounties that they have available where they allow researchers to report any vulnerabilities or bugs and then they pay them out, right? In this case, it's a little more formalized. It seems like there's a lot more restrictions in terms of tools you can use and methodology you're going to use and approach. But ultimately, it's sort of a watered-down version of a bug bounty program where they're openly yeah. calling out people to come and test things for them and, and provide reports on the things that they find. Yeah, and it's really hard, for example, you know, some people say, yeah, it should be open source, right? Uh, if it was open source, would people actually report the vulnerabilities they found, right? Uh, I call the biggest bug bounty out there uh, Bitcoin because basically if you find <laughs> a vulnerability there, you can become a millionaire. Forget about doing the right thing, right? So mm -hmm. it's uh, very interesting. And at the same time, it's, it's a publicity stunt for the government, meaning they want to get some, uh, you know, increase the confidence of, uh, you know, our citizens and everybody else that they are doing the right thing. And to some extent, you know, I, I think they, they are, but they will also bring the press to actually, you know, take shots of this test that goes over, you know, a week. They will bring uh, politicians and officials from friendly nations to show how the Brazilian, you know, voting process work at large and how it's tested. And even the politicians who are against uh, the electronic voting will come to this room and get their cell phones and do their speeches for their blogs. And you kind of feel like, wow, I'm, <laughs> I'm in, uh, you know, I'm behind the tape here trying to focus in a lot of other things going on uh, while I'm trying to find some, you know, vulnerabilities in the, in the system. Yeah, it's definitely a great marketing stunt for the Brazilian government, not just for the citizens of the country, but also for the international population and the other leaders of nations to just show some advancement in technology and capability, especially in such an important aspect of democracy around the voting process. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, Cassio, you are actually the founder of the OWASP Los Angeles chapter, if I understand correctly. Mm -hmm. So can you share with us a little bit more about how you got involved with the OWASP community and if there's any interesting initiatives you have that you're working on today? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I, I've been involved with OWASP for over a decade now when we first started at Semantic. And the reason we started the OWASP chapter in Los Angeles was because while I was working at Symantec, the company was doing some incredible things uh, in the low-level programming. But when it comes to web development and things like that, I felt that our engineers were not as where they should be, and there's some room for improvement to know the latest type of attacks. And I thought, hey, perhaps we can start hosting these OWASP meetings, bringing some of the best people uh, out there, and, uh, you know, with some luck, get some of our engineers to be involved 
and learn a little bit about what's, uh, what's going on in the web world and uh, bring to our products. So the first meeting was with uh, Jeff Williams, who was the president, one of the founders of, the, of uh, OWASP. And, uh, you know, at the meeting, he was over the phone with six people. Today, we have almost uh, 2,000 2, people part of the, the chapter. And, you know, during this first year, we got people like Alex Tamos, Brian Chance, and a lot other people who are, you know, fantastic and really well-known in this field. And we had like 15 attendants, right? Uh, once we had a uh, panel with uh, Steve Lipner, Gary McGraw, Jeremiah Grossman, and I was also part of the pra- uh, panel. And there were like 20 people to see, <laughs> which is, you know, just uh, funny considering, you know, how influ- uh, how much influence those guys actually made in AppSec, right? They are uh, basically celebrities of the AppSec world today. Yeah. And, you know, people don't, you know, in the, in, at that conference hardly knew who, who they were. Gary was kind of furious with me. <laughs> um and uh, we also did uh, AppSec USA 2010 was one of the biggest things that the chapter did at the time in the, in the beginning. And with that, we brought some really interesting talks. So, for example, uh, Mozilla announced the CSP, the Content Security Policy, at that uh, conference. Ivan Ristik introduced the SSL Labs, which is another tool that everybody in AppSec probably knows about. And uh, these days, we've been doing a conference called uh, AppSec Kelly every year. And the conference is right at the beach in uh, Santa Monica. And we're against some... That must be nice. It, it's, it's the nicest environment you're going to find. I highly encourage going to AppSec uh, webpage, AppSec Kelly webpage, to see the pictures because they are just unbelievable when we have the sunset in the ocean and we're actually having our uh, happy hour for the conference. But the nicest thing about the conference is that the environment where we were uh, doing the conference really impressed people at first, but these days, if you look at the videos and the quality of the talks that we're getting, it's very impressive for the quality of the recording and also for the quality of the speakers that uh, we've been getting as well. Uh, to, uh, last year, we got uh, Alex Tamos to do a talk, and the conference has a little bit less than 600 people. Compare with uh, Black Hat or even RSA, where you get the same talk from Alex Tamos for, you know, 60 thousand people, 30,000 people, right? So you, you have a lot of more opportunity to network and actually see some of the best minds in the, you know, in the industry there. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And yeah, I know for a fact how much value a lot of these community events and community groups and chapter chapters have on the security space. For a fact, we are definitely lacking resources in the security space today. We have more demand for security professionals than the supply. So these communities really help foster and evangelize the need for application security and security in general. So it's it's great what you're doing. And I'm so glad to hear how that LA chapter and OWASP community overall has grown so much over the years. So... Cassio, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I know for a fact from our last conversation that you're really into electronic music. So can you share with us a little bit about your passion for music and how you got started? 
Yeah, and I see you are too, Nabil. So I'm looking forward to <laughs> talk at some point about that as well. I'm and, a self-taught poor musician, but I'm sure you're way ahead of me. But I'd love to hear about your beginnings. I'm definitely not. Actually, uh, I started playing the keyboard uh, when I was a teenager, and after that, because you know, uh, there's other things in life that we have to do. I had to stop, uh, you know, playing. I was not uh, evolving and. Uh, developing as I wanted, but I promised that one day I would, you know, come back and start playing again. And obviously life is always busy and you never find the time until actually I bought an iPad. And uh, given all the, you know, travel that I do by airplane, I used to do a lot of, um, you know, code development or just work in the plane while I'm traveling, especially when it's like international travel. I don't sleep in the plane. I, I always feel sad for the person uh, sitting next to me because I just read and, you know, work until my battery, uh, you know, is <laughs> uh, <laughs> until you're, I you're use all my on the plane. I, I see how it is. I absolutely am. And once you have just uh, the plug and you had unlimited power for your devices, it got worse. But one thing actually uh, went against me, which was internet connectivity again. Because these days, a lot of things you want to do, even if you want to just do software development, you rely so much on you know, third-party APIs and so on, it's really difficult to do on the plane. So I found GarageBand, and that was very interesting to actually just play around and have some fun. I bought a uh, small uh, keyboard with two octaves, and that fits perfect in the you know, seat of the plane. So I would just put my phones once I cannot work anymore and just, you know, try to, to do some music. And with all type of hobbies, it starts getting a little bit more serious and you start looking at the new, you know, uh, digital audio workstations or, or DOS. And uh, you got in love with all the things that you can do. And, you know, these days when, especially during the quarantine, when I'm not, you know, working and spending time with family, I'm definitely trying to, do something with uh, those those tools. That's fantastic. Well, Cassio, I hope you get to make some good music, and I really look forward to listening to what you created during the quarantine time. So please share that with me. I would love to hear it and, and share it with others. Well, thank you so much for joining today. It's been truly a pleasure, and I look forward to hanging out with you in person as soon as this quarantine's over. Same thing. Thanks so much, Nabil. Take care. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.